This morning we're going to be in John 13. Now, the last time we saw Jesus, which was arguably his last public teaching prior to the cross, at the end of chapter 12, he said, believe in the light while you have the light that you may be sons of the light. Again, it's a progression of purpose. And today, in chapter 13, these next few chapters are going to be arguably his last teaching to his closest followers prior to the cross. We're going to see that Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Now, I submit to you, and you might say, this sounds counterintuitive, I submit to you that Jesus washing the disciples' feet has nothing to do with, number one, foot washing. And has nothing to do with, number two, cleanliness. It has everything to do with sanctification, humility, repentance, being other-centered, being obedient to God, love, and service. And pragmatically, what Jesus was doing was giving his followers a template. I'm going to be crucified. You're going to be without me for a while. The Holy Spirit's not going to be given wholesale for a while. Okay, you guys are going to have to learn how to treat each other and get through this world while I'm gone. Okay, so this is a template for his followers. Now, what about 2,000 years later? Honestly, if we teach the Bible and we, you know, explain it and stuff and we don't make the application for us today and we don't know what to do with it, then what do we do? Why are we here? Why are we coming to church? So this is really, as you understand what Jesus is saying here, it's really a template for us to incorporate into our lifestyle. It's, it's a heart attitude. So verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus is going to die on the cross. And he loved them to, the Greek word is telos, to completion, to the uttermost. Christ loved them not only as his, their leader, as their friend, but also as their God. Now, even when the disciples were unfaithful, you pick any chapter in the scripture where there's interaction with the disciples, and you'll see that they didn't get stuff, they were unfaithful, they even argued with the Lord at times, but he loved them. And what warms my heart is the fact that we are also unfaithful as believers you know, in the 21st century, and he loves us as well to the uttermost. This is what I call this lopsided love. And I'm thankful for lopsided love because my love for God sometimes has strings attached, has uh, self-seeking, self-serving. But God's love to me is autonomous of anything else. He just does it. So I love that about him. He feels the same for you and for me. Now, what an example of a leader, too. When we look at Jesus, we always have to ask the question twice. What did he do as God and what did he do as a man? As a loving God, he loved us, he loved them. As a man, he was a great leader. You know, when you look at leadership today, whether even spiritual, religious, or political, oftentimes the followers are stepping stones for a leader's aspiration. That was not the case here. Jesus laid down his life for his followers. And some three years later, he says, now my hour has come. As we go through the scripture and he goes through you know, his life and he goes through his teachings, many times there were those that wanted to make him king. Well, gee, you fit all the aspects of the Messiah. We're just going to make you king. And Jesus says, my hour hasn't come. See, he worked on a divine timetable. It was another good template for us. You know, Ecclesiastes 3, I love that scripture. It says there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, there's a time to weep, there's a time to laugh, and it goes on. It's a great scripture. 
And we need to find out what our timetable is, of course, God's timetable that we can key in on. And the best way that we can do that is through prayer, regular communication with the Lord, and to be in his word. Verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So the devil put this traitorous idea into Judas's heart. But you know what? Judas ran with it. Okay, that's the issue. So number one, even when we're tempted to sin, a loving God always gives us a way out. I want to read to you, amen, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Great scripture. It says, no temptation has overtaken you, to the Corinthians, but also to Calvary Chapel Crossfields people. No temptation has overtaken us except such that is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. That's impressive. So the devil provides the temptation, and God provides the escape hatch. Every time. Anytime I've ever sinned, I can look back and say, I didn't take the escape hatch. I willingly went for it, because it's always been there. And number two, even when we fail to resist the sin and we don't take the escape hatch, what happens? God provides for repentance. That's the God that I love and I know. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, to who? A priest? Pastor Joe? No, to him. If we, for, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So number one, no temptation that, that's overtaking you is, is any different than anybody else. There is a way out. And even if you don't take it and you do sin, God still provides a way for repentance. I mean, you just can't get any better than that. For every problem, he provides a solution. Three, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. Jesus did something that was not only counterintuitive, and I'll explain the culture, but it was unimaginable. It was unthinkable to the disciples. He starts to wash their feet. Now, I like to walk around the house barefoot, sometimes outside. It's just comfortable to me. But if you lived back then, there was no asphalt, there was no concrete, there was no clean roads, it was dirty. And the animals traveled the same roads, and they would leave some things behind as well, okay? So your, your shoes were not the fancy shoes that you see today. They were open-toed, barely anything. And as you walked through, you would get dust and dirt, kick up, fungus, you know, um, probably didn't have really nice toe clippers, you know, toenail clippers. When I go out in my sandals, I want to make sure there's no talons hanging over the edge. You know, I clip everything real nice. So you can imagine the situation with anyone's feet in those days. So I'm starting to paint a picture for you, and it's not a pretty picture, okay? In that culture, some households provided a lowly servant or slave to take the guest in and wash their feet before they got into the living area. 
Some households didn't even have that provision. Here's a towel, wash your own feet if you want to. I'm not getting near those things. From a world standpoint, especially if you look at Greco-Roman culture, again, if you were of anybody of any importance, you wouldn't be washing anybody's feet, let alone a respected teacher, let alone the Son of God. So you can imagine the horror or the chagrin, the embarrassment that the disciples were dealing with. (laughs) From my next victim. This is what happens when you sit in the front. (laughs) What I want to do is I want to illustrate what the Lord did for a few reasons. Now, Russ is kind enough to come up here. (laughs) I put the chair where everybody can see you. I hope you know that. But it was really worse in, in those days, especially at this particular Uh, Last Supper, because what was happening is, and we've gone over this, the table was a triclinium. It was a three-sided table, and it was a lower table, and the disciples would lean, or you would lean, against the part where the food was in the center, and the feet would be as far away from that table as possible. So it was almost like when the Lord came up to the feet of the disciples, it was almost like coming up to the backside of a barn. You know, it it was the uncomely part sticking out there. So all these dirty feet were in a row. See, this is why I want you, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I want you to, in your mind, get what he was doing to understand why the disciples uh, had a difficulty, especially Peter, with this particular practice. So picture the Lord. He would take the basin. He would gird himself with a towel. Now, the Roman soldier's uniform had a sword. It had armor. You know, it had cleats. Here was the uniform of a servant, his towel, because all the servant did was clean up after people. So this was the accoutrements, this was the uniform of the servant. So Jesus girds himself with the towel, takes the washcloth, takes the water. I put hot water in it so it would be good by now, (laughs) of being kind. Puts it in the basin, right? So you can imagine the disciples... I bet you could hear a pin drop as Jesus started to do this. And he gets down, takes the sandals off, right? Takes them by the feet. Just picture the Lord doing this. Well, he's got the, the washcloth. Now, I know Russ because he knew this was coming. These are some nice clean feet, okay? <laughs> <laughs> The disciples didn't know that this was coming. And Jesus carefully, he washes the feet. And I bet that there was not, all you could hear was the mice nibbling on cheese somewhere. Takes the towel. Just kind and lovingly, going through all the disciples, the Lord as a servant, wanting to teach us something. Thank you. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. We need to understand that. The question is, is there anything that we would do that the Lord did that we would say, that's beneath me? See, we live in a society, unfortunately, that seems to breed that. I don't think we're that far removed from Greco-Roman culture. I'll tell you a quick story. I was a police officer for a few years, and uh, I was a new Christian. And I had a mentor, Nick, who was dying of cancer, about 10 years my my senior. And at the time, we would do ride-alongs. You could take somebody, and it was like being on the show with cops. They could sit next to you. 
And it, he, he loved doing that. So I would take him every so often, sit him in the patrol car, and I would say, here are the rules. Don't get involved. Stay behind me. I have to handle the scene. I've got to deal with them, and I have to protect you too. So be quiet. Stay behind me. Just observe. So we go to this house. It's a, what we call a squad call. And there's an older couple. It was a small house, very cluttered. You could see that they were having a struggle in their life. And one of them, I don't remember if it was the male or the female, was sickly. So the first aid comes, and they're working on them. And as a police officer, your job is just to make sure there's no injuries from domestic violence. You don't really do much unless the squad's not there and you have to do CPR. Otherwise, you acquiesce to the first aid squad. So in the commotion, you know, you got all these first aiders, you got this older couple, they're overwhelmed. There was a bucket of water, somebody knocks it over, now there's water all over their kitchen floor. It's not my job. In my mind, I'm the police officer. You know, I'm here to keep the order and such. I'm observing what's going on, the water's going everywhere. I go to talk to one of the first aiders, and I see somebody on their hands and knees with their back towards me on all fours. It was Nick. He disobeyed me. <laughs> but he, but he, you know what he also did? He broke my heart. That, from that point on, that changed my heart. He would take the towel, and he didn't do it as a show. It just was his nature. He couldn't help but do this. And he sopped up the water, and he wrung out the towel. And do you know he cleaned that whole floor? And you know what? I didn't stop him. Broke my heart. And there has to be times in our lives where we allow the word of God to penetrate our heart and to break it if necessary. God will provide that for us. But will we allow it to happen? Servanthood. Unfortunately, this disobedience plagues ministries as well as Christians, especially in our culture. A pastor that I respect used the term green room Christian. If you're familiar with the rock and roll band type of scene, it's where the, the band members come in and they're given food and alcohol or whatever. They're very well taken care of before they go to perform. Green room Christians. You look at some of these ministries on TV and that's what you see. It's glitz, it's glamour. And it almost becomes like a drug where they become, they have an elevated importance of themselves. Where does this leave some of these posh preachers with finely manicured fingernails, with perfect hair, never see them wearing jeans? They actually go home and they have servants washing their feet. So where's, that's the question. You see, servanthood doesn't stop when we're successful. I don't care if you are called to be a follower of Christ, you are a servant. Why? Because your master was a servant and he said, follow me. Now let's look at some of the symbolism here. It's multifaceted. It says Jesus laid aside his outer garment. Jesus took the form of a man. He laid aside his body to be crucified and to die for our sins. Jesus girded himself with the towel. Jesus put on servanthood. One of the most important qualities of being a Christian is to be a servant. Jesus poured water into the basin, which is emblematic of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus washed them with that water. He sanctified them. Let's look at this micro and let's look at this macro. He washed their bodies, bathed it, and we're going to talk about that figuratively. Right? The whole person had justification. He declares us righteous even though we're sinners because of what he did on the cross. Let's look at this micro now. From macro to micro, he washed their feet. There's a sanctification process. There's a forgiveness process. So there's a lot of a symbolism here, you know, the daily sins that we uh, unfortunately commit. Verse 6. 
Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Ouch. (laughs) Why do we love Peter? Because he probably said what everyone else there was thinking. You know? Thomas, give it, give it enough time. Peter's going to pipe up. Three, two, one. There he goes. What I love about Peter as well is that I don't have to be perfect in ministry because Peter wasn't perfect. You know, we're sinners saved by grace. We're fallen creatures. I think what we also might find amazing about this is how Jesus gets questioned at times. And it wasn't only Peter. This is the Lord. This is the Son of God. What are you doing, Jesus? Oh, yeah, you're right, Peter. I let this Messiah thing get away from me. You know, let's, let's go back to eating. No. And this is important. If you don't do this and you don't allow it, you have no part with me. Keep that in mind. And sometimes, what do we do? Are we any different? When we pray about something and God does something different and we have a problem with what God is doing, we have a problem with the way things are turning out, don't we do the same thing that Peter does? Sure we do. We're no different than they are. Verse 7, Jesus reminds Peter, this must take place. And you're not going to get it right now, but eventually you will. And I believe that refers to Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given, and the Holy Spirit filled them, and the Holy Spirit was with them continually at that point. And the Holy Spirit is our counselor. He's our teacher. You know, when Jesus went to ascend, the Holy Spirit is the one now that guides us through life, right? According to God's word. Verse 8, Peter, instead of obeying, and under the guise, I believe, of being spiritual, reacts in the flesh. I think in his fleshly heart, he, he said, you know what, Lord, this is, this is beneath you. I can't let you do this. Remember, though, how do you question God? Remember, we can never be more spiritual than the Lord Jesus was. Now, the Greek rendering of what uh, Peter said, it doesn't come out in the English, is literally, never, never into all eternity will you wash my feet. That's literally what he said. If you remember, when Jesus spoke about going to the cross, uh, when Peter, or Jesus spoke about going to the cross, Peter also said, you shall never go to the cross. So he had a, a little, he had an issue with, you know, instead of thinking through or you know, just relying on the Lord, he had an issue of just speaking from the flesh. So Jesus has to rebuke Peter and says, you don't have any part with me if you don't allow this to take place. That's pretty harsh. What are you saying, Jesus? You know, I, we, we're, not, we're not a thing anymore. Peter, you don't have any part with me unless you let this take place. Why? For two reasons. Number one, see, we're going to flip-flop here between what this means. Is it about clean feet? Is it about foot washing? No, absolutely not. It's number one about what the Lord did for us spiritually and how we're to give of ourselves for others, how we're supposed to treat each other. So it's twofold. So this is very important. And the question is, is there anything that's beneath us? Good question to ask. I've got to be honest with you, when when some people miss in the men's room and there's a little puddle of pee-pee on the floor under the urinal, I don't ask one of the ushers, come clean up the pee-pee. I take the towels, I do it myself, and I wash my hands before I shake hands again. So (laughs) is there anything, and, and listen, there's nothing to brag about there. That's just part of who we are. That's part of our makeup as spiritual beings, to be servants, to be servants. Verse 9. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, Lord, or Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. This would be called overcompensation. Now he's going in the other direction. Sometimes it's better to just, if we're not in the right frame of mind, just to be quiet. (laughs) You know, I could picture the disciples going, he's getting scolded again, you know. Verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. Now the word for wash up until this point, we've seen wash, wash, wash. The, the Greek word is nipto, which means to wash a part of the body. Some translations continue with wash, but the New King James has the proper translation, and now he says bathe. There's a different Greek word meaning luo to mean the entire body, the whole body. In other words, back then, when you walked through the Roman world, you picked up dirt. You could, be, you could have just bathed from head to toe, you're completely clean. But throughout the day, you might need to have your feet washed several times, depending on how much you're walking and traveling you're doing, but you're still clean, except for your feet. You pick up you know, the dirt from the world. Spiritually, we're bathed. When we believe in what Jesus did, his sacrifice for our sins, Jesus died for my sins. I believe that. I trust in him as my Lord and Savior. I am bathed. I'm saved. And you only get saved once. You don't keep getting saved every week. However, when we pick up the filth from this world, when we're uh, influenced by this world, when we start to sin and act like the world, what do we need? Our daily sins need to be repented of. So that's where the the foot washing come in. Repentance is very important. Now, I have to tell you that a lot of churches don't teach this stuff anymore. Because, you know, hey, we got to get numbers. We need tithe money. It's a a tough economy. So what they do is they start to leave out the, the unpretty parts of the scripture. But we do ourselves a big disservice when we do that. Repentance is important because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that doesn't change when we become Christians. We still need to have our feet washed. Even the Old Testament priests in Exodus 29, when they were consecrated, they would wash their bodies. But they would never do that again. From then on, Exodus 30 said that they would wash their hands and their feet. Where they were walking, what they were touching, it was symbolic of that cleansing. Okay. In verse 10, Jesus says, you are not all clean. Of course, speaking of, of Judas, Judas did not fully trust the Lord for his salvation. Now imagine this, being so close to the kingdom, walking with Jesus, probably partaking in the miracles, handing out the baskets of bread and fish that the Lord multiplied and not being saved, denying yourself entrance into the kingdom. People can be so close. They can be around. They could have Christian parents. They could have a Christian spouse. They could have Christian children. They could go to a Christian church and still not be saved because they, they have not allowed themselves to be completely washed by the Lord, to trust in his, uh, his sacrifice for our sins. Don't deny yourself entrance into the kingdom. Wherever you are today, whoever you are, however you came into here, there's a way, and it's through the Lord. Don't deny yourself entrance into the kingdom. Now, I believe that Jesus' words to Judas were loving. It wasn't snarky. It wasn't, I know what you're going to do. Well, wait, wait, you know what's coming to you at the end of the line. 
I don't believe it was that way. I think it was in love. I think it was firm. It was, it was in a disciplining matter, but it was in a loving matter. And I believe that when, and again, I don't know this. When, I, when I'm not sure, I will tell you, this is my opinion. I believe when Jesus came time to wash Judas's feet, I believe that he was as tender and caressing and loving, and he probably took the most time with Judas, getting between every toe, because he loved him. And, okay, Judas, you fulfilled the scripture, but you can still repent. You can still gain entrance into the kingdom. Your sins can be forgiven too. It's available to everyone. No one has to be outside of the kingdom. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. You know, this is a command. But again, it's not to literally, don't miss this here. It's not that if we go around periodically, and some churches do this, and we wash each other's feet, we're good. We could do whatever we want the rest of the week because we were told to wash each other's feet, and we did it. That's another thing to check off the list as being a Christian. It's got to be a hard attitude. It's got to permeate. And thank God Russ had clean feet today, you know? But the, the, it's the exact same reason why Russ came into this church with clean feet and the disciples were caught off guard with dirty feet that they were in horror. They were, they were embarrassed because Jesus lowered himself that low to take care of them. You could picture them squirming. This is my master. This is the son of God doing this to me. It was probably difficult for them. But it boils down to a common denominator. The Lord sacrificed for us, and he wants us to sacrifice for others. It's the least that we could do. I'll give you an example. This parable of the unforgiving servant is so powerful because you have the master, and his one servant owes him this enormous amount of money that he could not pay if he worked every day for the rest of his life. And, and when we did that parable, I actually did it mathematically and found out that it was not humanly possible with all the overtime in the world to pay his master back. And his master forgave him. However, what he did was he went to a fellow servant, so servant one and then servant two. He goes to servant two and that guy owes him like a few hundred bucks. And he's shaking him, you better pay me. I'm going to throw you into prison. Now, when the master finds out about this, he's furious. He said, after I forgave you so much, you could not forgive your fellow servant? And that's a picture of how much the Lord forgave us. Is there anything another human being could do to us that we really can't forgive? Now, we may not put ourselves in the same situation where it, you know, it repeats itself. Remember, Jesus says, if your brother repents 70 times 7, repentance is important because of the change of direction and behavior. But in our heart, we can forgive another person who's hurt us. Okay, if you abuse my child watching them on Saturday night, I can forgive you, but probably you're not going to be watching them for a succession of Saturdays after that. It's just common sense. So by the same token, the Lord is saying, I washed you. Because I shed my blood, I've given you eternal life. And, and you can't do that for anybody else, and you can't repay me, but on your level as a human being, will you wash each other's feet? It's the same parable as the unforgiving servant. See, Jesus does so much for us, and when he asks us to do something for another person, can we really say no? 
after we've received the goodness of what he's done for us. No, we can't. We can't. There's a huge disparity there. Now again, if churches, and there are probably around here that practice foot washing, that's great, I don't knock it. However, if that heart attitude of service does not permeate and is not woven through the tapestry and the fabric of your personal being for the rest of the week, then it's a useless religious ritual. And the church is filled with useless religious rituals. That's not what Jesus is speaking about. Something to really, really take hold of. Verse 16. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. I tell you, if I was one of the disciples, I'm a thinker. My head would be spinning. What are you saying, Jesus? You're the greatest, and now you're washing my feet. Now you're saying that, but you're you're greater than all, and, and now I have to kind of do what you're saying. And what does that mean, Lord? What does that mean? In other words, what I'm telling you is this is a non-negotiable Christian tenet. This is probably one of the most important teachings in the scripture. This was hard for the disciples to swallow, and it's really still hard, especially in some of these glamour ministries, still hard for Christians to follow. I just want to read to you what Warren Wiersbe, I love him. He's very concise about these things in his book, Be Transformed. He says this on page 16. He says, we today, just like the disciples that night, desperately need this lesson on humility. The church is filled with a worldly spirit of competition and criticism as believers vie with one another to see who is the greatest. We are growing in knowledge, but not in grace. Humility is the only soil in which the graces root, wrote Andrew Murray. The lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. Let me add, in the church and in our personal lives. Amen, Warren. (laughs) He says, Jesus says this. This is important. He says, if you know these things, happy are you if you consider them. Happy are you if you say you're going to get around to them. Happy if you say, well, one of these days. No. He says, happy are you if you do them. Not to be just a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word. Now, there's this word in here. A lot of books are written on this one word, this one trigger word, happy. Raise your hand. Who here wants to be happy? Well, yeah, I mean, duh. I mean, that's an easy question. You're like, some of you are like, is he trying to trick me? I'm not so sure about that. He's, he's done that before, you know. No. Happy are we if we do them. The word for, in Greek is makarios, which where we get blessed, fortunate, well-off. He gives us the secret of happiness. No, it's not wealth. No, it's not a promotion. No, it's not accolades from our peers, but it's humbly serving others. Now, this makes no sense whatsoever in the flesh. I want to be happy. And you're telling me that I've got to stop focusing on myself, focusing on other people, but right now I'm not happy. And if I can't be happy, I'm going to be miserable helping other people. Right? (laughs) And that's what we have. So two arguments here. Number one is the architectural or the design argument. Okay? Let me give you an example. The design argument. How are we wired? How are we put together? Well, there was in the whole gas rationing program on Route 1 in North Brunswick, there was a gas station. Some of you shaking your heads, you know what I'm going to say. And they were supposed to be pumping gas, but... You know, in the rush and the insanity of everything that was going after the hurricane, 
uh, diesel fuel got mixed with gasoline. How many of you filled your cars up with that? Anybody? <laughs> Good. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and um, a lot of people had expensive, costly repairs because they have gasoline motors and there's diesel mixed with gasoline. It's not running right. Why? Because the car, if you read your owner's manual, didn't say to fill up with diesel and gasoline. It said fill up with gasoline. The same argument applies to us. Jesus framed us in a certain way, especially as believers, as new creatures in Christ. And we're to operate properly when we operate in the proper framework to be other-centered, not to be self-centered. And I tell you, that's the key to America's problems. Too many people are looking in the mirror instead of looking around or looking up. The second argument is the practical argument. I'll give you an example. For marriage, if you go into a marriage saying, whatever, you know, this person can provide A, B, and C for me. If you go into a marriage looking to get, it's not going to be long before you're going to be in Pastor Paul's office and you're going to get marriage counseling done because the marriage is going to start to fall apart. When we get married, we think of the other person and we minister to the other person and say, gee, my days of being single are over. I grieve it, I mourn it, I bury it. <laughs> it's a new life. <laughs> a lot of married people here, I can see, I can tell that. So there's the practical argument. You don't go into a marriage seeking what you can get out of it. There's got to be giving. Okay? Secondly, when you look into the eyes of a person who's been abused, who's been hungry, who's been destitute, and you hold out your hand to help as a representative of the living God, and you see the look on their faith, that is priceless. That is something you can't buy. A brother in the Lord who's new to the faith was just telling me that he went down the shore to the highlands and he was ministering to people and he was choked up talking to me about his experience. He said, it's a, it's a different level in my life. He goes, I was able to help some of these people. It blew him away. And it's something that you can't understand it unless you experience. It's priceless. Now, I will tell you, if you're not doing that and you're self-centered, it's, it doesn't matter what I think of you. It's not important. And I'm not here to condemn anybody. However, you're ripping yourself off. You're ripping yourself off of an experience that will change your life forever, for as long as you live. Amen? A few words in closing. Number one, this has nothing to do with washing feet. <laughs> Typical of the Lord Jesus Christ, what you see on the surface is not what he's trying to show you beneath the surface. This is a command for a template of a heart attitude. Number two, on the Lord's end, this indicates justification, sanctification, big words. In other words, justification. He's washed us fully. He's bathed us in the sacrifice that he made on the cross. When God looks at us, we're justified as if we've never seen, sinned. He also sanctifies us as he washes our feet and we realize what we've done wrong and we repent and confess our sins to God. As many times as we do it, he'll forgive us. On our end, number one, we have to receive the, the sacrifice that he made for us. We have to take hold of it. We have to, he already put out his hand. We have to put out ours and join with his hand and complete that relationship. And there's obedience as well. It's not, listen, it's not fun to, we go through the entire Bible and man, in some areas we do really good 
In some areas, we fall short. And it's not fun when we look in the mirror and we realize we're falling short. But trust God. Be obedient. See what he'll do through you. Lastly, even when we do serve, and this is important, is the attitude of the heart right? Now, I've seen both extremes in ministry, and these are extremes. The devil is always in the extremes, all the time. The first one, when we serve, the attitude is, or is it, well, I'm not being paid when we do a, a, subs, a subsistence job. Maybe we come late. Maybe we don't show up. Maybe we don't call people when we serve. Not being paid. But we'll give 110% to a secular boss. Really? Really? A secular boss? We should give a lot more to the Lord. Years ago, there was a, a man who had a, a ministry, and he came into church every Sunday just miserable grumpy, and it affected other people. And I said to him, bro, stay home. Until you can learn to serve with joy, stay home, because you're starting to affect other people. God's making me do this? Is he a parent that's telling us to clean our rooms? This is the living God that we serve. You know, you come, we come to church Sunday to get the right frame of mind, the right mindset. The other extreme, I've seen this as well, is because a person may, be, they have, may have ability they may run their own business, they may be a CEO, they may be a manager, they may be accomplished, and they come to serve and they want to dominate. They want to take over. Well, they're not listening to my ideas. I know what I'm doing. Not in ministry. It's a different animal. And well, if the people don't listen to me and they don't accept me for who I am in, in my position, then I'm not going to come back. That's not self-serving. That's, that's not serving. It's called self-serving. That's what that is. Talked about this on Sunday with Joab and David. David had this captain, Joab, who he was good at everything. This guy could build stuff. He could win wars. And David kept him on. But Joab was always a thorn in David's flesh. He was a get-or-done type of guy. But the problem was is he had too much pride. I tell you this, and, and I believe this as well. I would prefer to have somebody with little ability but with a whole lot of humility than a lot of ability and very little humility. All it does is ever cause me problems. And you know what? God can't use you, and he won't use you for long, if that's the attitude. Humility has to be a big part of this. My desire is that this morning, that we come away with something. Because this is too crucial of a teaching that forms our Christian life for us not to come away with anything. If you have any questions, please ask. Please come to us. If you want to pray about getting involved in ministry, or being discipled to be that, that person that helps, um, we, we would love that. Let's pray.